are you doing? Fantastic. Well, uh, this is a fun week. We get to talk about a topic that uh, relates to almost none of us in anxiety. I've been, uh, you would think if you're going to spend a week kind of prepping to talk about anxiety, you wouldn't think you'd be really anxious, but I guess God's got a funny sense of humor. So on the outside, I kind of feel like this, but on the inside, I kind of feel like, like this. We got a little side by side here, so <laughs> well, that's kind of it. Evidently, according to FaceApp, this is what I look like when I'm like in my 70s. And so I thought to myself, well, that's not too bad. So what's really funny is this. That actually, that actually, and by the way, okay, yes, I was at the gym. You've all seen a tank top before, okay? So don't send me an email that's like, Rustin wasn't a tank. Those are my shoulders. Is everybody all right? Okay. But this is what's super funny about this is that literally looks like you cut my dad's head off and stuck it on my neck. And so I sent this to my family this week and he's here right now hating every moment of this. But, but I just laughed because I went, oh my gosh. And at first I had this moment where I'm like, well, they just took my dad. They, took a, they made me look like my dad. And then I had this weird revelation that was like, they don't know what my dad looks like. This is actually pretty plausible. So, so anyway, we had a lot of fun, but it, it's, this is kind of what we're going to go after today. We're not going to talk about FaceApp. And again, I'll save myself a bunch of emails. I know that Russia now owns my face. Okay, so <laughs> don't come up to me and go, well, you know, I know I deleted the app. If Russia wants to own my face, they don't need FaceApp to do that. Okay, so we're all moving on. But the reality is anxiety affects all of us. You guys can pull that off because I'm not going to be able to preach if that's back there. <laughs> Just drop that picture. It's distracting. So uh, there's a reality that anxiety affects our lives. I did a Google search this week, and one of the things that I found was when you search anxiety or you search examples of anxiety, you get 107 million results in 0.48 seconds. In less than half a second, Google brought back over 107 million different, I don't know, articles, websites, uh, pictures of stressed out people. I don't know what the 107 million were. But this is such a pertinent topic for our society because we are all dealing with it. I was joking with a friend last night before service. I kind of said, he said, well, you know, this should be a pretty pertinent topic. And I said, yeah, nobody's off the hook this week. <laughs> we all deal with worry and anxiety. And in order to, to really have an impact, a full, complete, holistic impact on all of us, we need to be able to distinguish between something, okay? And I, I recognize that this is very much present in, in our society. And so if I don't say this, I'll lose a portion of the congregation before we even start. And, and so I want all of us to dial into this. So all, all of our venues, which are, are with us now, all our campuses, Cactus, Venue, Chapel, uh, Northridge, I want you to dial into this distinction because it's imperative, all right? There is a difference uh, in, in, in what I see between a clinically diagnosed depression uh, and I'm not going to name them all, but like bipolar disorder, anxiety, all of that stuff that's clinically diagnosed and operating at a level of mental illness, okay? And what we're going to talk about today, which is our, our spiritual condition and a spiritual problem that we deal with with anxiety, okay? Now, here's what I need to do. If I don't separate that, there are individuals who are sitting here who have been wrestling uh, for potentially a long time or a lifetime with a clinically diagnosed condition of depression or something like it, okay? And what they would do is they'd sit back and they'd go, yeah, my, my depression doesn't operate that way. And so, you know what? This really doesn't apply to me, okay? So what I wanna do is just go, listen, I recognize that there's a difference, 
But what I want you to understand is that the thing that we're gonna talk about today, our spiritual condition and a spiritual problem, okay, of anxiety, which is what Jesus is talking about, can, can exacerbate this other area of mental illness. This can make this worse. So I kinda wanna give it to you right off the bat, all right? Mental illness, that's fine. But what I want you to understand is that this can make this worse and bring everybody back into the fold. Does that make sense? Good, because it is different and yet one can make the other worse. Now, we've got kind of a lengthy passage today, so what I wanna do is let me pray real quick and then I wanna dive in and read our passage so we can get kind of the lay of the land at a global level and then we'll reread each of these verses as we go through it. So Lord, we come to you today and we recognize that this is a difficult issue for all of us. Uh, we wrestle with the things of tomorrow. We, we're constantly in a worried and anxious state. And, and you tell us today that we don't have to do that. Uh, Jesus, I, I pray that we would hear your words, your care for your children echoing through the centuries as we read this passage today, that you saw this as a problem. You saw this as something that was taking us apart. And you so lovingly said, I have a solution. And we're gonna actually talk about a solution to that spiritual condition of anxiety today. And so as we come into that, in order for that to have a deep impact, we have to open our hearts and be willing to let you work on us. And so that's my prayer over all of Scottsdale Bible Church, of all of those who are watching online, that we would all be willing to, to let down kind of the drawbridge of our heart and say, Lord, would you come in and do a deep work uh, in me in this area because this affects us all. So Lord, we pray this in your name, amen. Okay, so chapter six of the Gospel of Matthew, we're gonna start in verse 25. We're gonna read all the way through verse 34. So just stick with me. And a lot of these verses are gonna sound familiar because you've heard them before. So this is what it says, verse 25. It says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Uh, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, Where shall, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day are its own troubles. This is a great passage because it's got at least a verse or two that all of us go, you know what, I've heard that one. You know what, I, I, I've heard that one before, that one's familiar with me. Or you go, you know what, I've seen that one. It, it sits on a, 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 you know, a little sign over my friend's front door. It's a good reminder and what I wanna show you today is these, are, these verses are far more than just a good reminder. When looked at in the context of the Sermon on the Mount and what we've already walked through in this series where Kevin and I have opened up heart issues, not just behavioral issues, there is something far deeper than just a good reminder. We got something right up front that we gotta kinda of deal with. The first word that we see in our passage is the word therefore. 
And so as we've talked time and time again, there are certain words that should catch your attention in the Bible. And if your Bible reading for the day starts off with the word but, you should ask the question, but what? And today we've got one of those words where Jesus is making a statement. He's saying, therefore. We go, okay, well, therefore what? What is the point that Jesus has just made that he is now offering a next step to? And to do that, I want to read for you Matthew 6, 24, the verse before our passage. It says this, no one can serve two masters for he will either hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, isn't it interesting that everything we're gonna talk about today in regards to this topic of anxiety is coming out of Jesus talking about the God of money. See, we talked last time I was in the pulpit and I said, you know, money's not inherently evil, but money does a really good job of convincing us that we can lead a self-sufficient life. It does a good job of helping us think, well, I can supply for all of my needs because I have enough money to buy them. And it's at that point, for those of us who have the ability to supply for all of our needs, that we go, oh, I actually have more needs than I thought, and they are not monetary, they are not physical. And so Jesus is coming out of this and basically saying this, which we'll circle back to towards the end, a, a life spent serving the God of money will make you anxious. That's the point we're coming into. And so he comes right in and he says, you can't serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Now, Jesus does a really good job. He, this is, should probably be no great surprise for those of us who preach on a regular basis. We go, he was pretty good at this. Jesus was a great preacher. And so what he does in, our, in our, this section of the sermon today is he's making a point. So I wanna show you what the structure of what we're gonna walk through today is. Jesus comes right out in the beginning and just makes the point. Here's what I want you to walk away with. Do not be anxious about your life, verse 25. But then because he's a really good preacher and he's super compassionate, he goes, he does what a lot of preachers do. He goes, it's kind of like this. He goes, it's kind of like, you know, you guys are worried about food. They're kind of like birds. Food's kind of like, let's look at birds. Okay, he goes, you're worried about your clothes. You guys are all stressed about what you're wearing. He goes, let's talk about clothes. What do you know about grass and flowers, okay? We'll connect those dots in a minute. Then he comes back and he goes, with those two examples in place, does it make sense? Does my main point to you make sense? Jesus kind of goes, and he comes back and he summarizes the main point. And then in verse 33, he goes, so here's the solution to what you guys are all worried about. And then he comes back at the very end and he goes, so now, does it make sense how you should operate? This is a beautiful thought pattern that Jesus is just going, here it is, and he keeps checking back in in an auditory way with his audience going, example, example, does that make sense? Here's the solution, and, and now does it make sense? So he keeps bobbing back and forth. And so the, the first thing that you see after Jesus makes his first point where he just says, listen, don't be worried, don't be anxious about your life, okay? And he, he hones it in for the two things that he knows his audience is most worried about. You guys are worried about food and clothes, okay? Those were the worries of the day. Food and clothes, you guys are all stressed out about that. So the first thing that he does in verse 26, after he's done 25 and made his main point, is he does this. He goes, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? 
Now, I'm gonna reread each of these verses. I hope by the time we leave in just 30 or so minutes, you guys are so tired of hearing this that you go, you know, I've heard that all, but now it's kind of ingrained in my brain. It's like a stupid theme song. I can't forget them. I'm great with that, okay? So we're gonna reread each of these. This is a really tough example for us. And here's why. Because today, animals don't function the way that they did in the first century, okay? Let me give you an example. At no point in the first century was somebody, as Jesus is talking about animals, sitting there with a little bag woven out of heather and a chihuahua with a tiara on as a therapy animal. Like, that wasn't a thing. Nobody's going, you know what? He's talking about anxiety, you know? And me and Princess here have this great relationship and she makes me feel better inside. That wasn't going on, okay? There was no goat yoga, all right? Animals served a very specific purpose. You know what that purpose was? In an agriculture, work, okay? You didn't buy an oxen because you needed a friend. You bought an oxen because you needed a tractor. (laughs) That's how it functioned. So this is tricky for us because animals aren't necessarily part of our daily work anymore. And so, and and I'm gonna kind of hold both tensions here. I'm gonna try and pull this right back to what it meant to a first century audience. And I gotta kind of protect the animal lovers a little bit in this or like, Tonight's 11 o'clock news story will be local pastor beaten by a bunch of animal lovers after service. Like, I just wanna, I wanna bring it all together and let's make the point. Jesus isn't saying, you guys are more valuable than animals, so therefore animals don't matter. And at the same time, we can't bring our modern understanding of animals to this because they basically do serve a therapeutic and kind of almost relational-based sense. That's not what they served there. Jesus made a point that the first century audience would have absolutely understood, which is, you guys know about your animals, right? But here's what Jesus is saying. He's going, okay, let's do this. You guys see those birds over there? They very likely could have looked over and gone, oh yeah, the ones by that tree. He goes, yeah, the birds. You know, the ones that fly in and eat a worm and then go, yeah, I'm good. I, you know, I, I, I'm full. I don't need any more worms. You know, this, they, I show up, they're here. He goes, yeah, those over there, I'm doing a killer job taking care of birds, The birds are killing it under my watch. Why is it that you don't think I wanna do that for you? Now, when he says, aren't you more valuable than they, he is speaking to a foundational level kingdom principle, which is that man was the apex of his creation, Jesus' creation. That when he created man, he said, you will be different. You will be made in my image. No other part of creation will share an image with me. And so the reality is Jesus is making a point here that they would have gotten and gone, oh yeah, of course I I matter more or I have more value, but what I don't want you to hear in that is that animals don't matter because that's a sensitive topic for some of us. Jesus is going, no, no, the animals are getting exemplary care under my watch. I wanna do that for you as well. Why don't you understand that I love you, image bearer, more than this? The other thing that we really have to wrap our brain around to get to this is that what Jesus is talking here about is, is needs versus wants. The, I love the point that he makes. He goes, listen, the birds, they don't, they don't store away in barns. Like they don't do any of those things. Birds aren't sitting there going, let's go hide a month's worth of food and worms and things in our nest so that we like, let's build more nests so that we can, he goes, birds aren't doing that. You see, birds aren't storing away for how much food they want. They're being supplied for every day in their needs. You guys hear that? 
That's something we sort of need to hear, and we'll talk about this in a second, because we need to see that what Jesus is promising us is that our needs will be met. And, and this is, we have a broad audience that I have to make this point to, okay? So the reality here, and I'm gonna really zero this in in a bit, but for many of us, the things that we're stressed about are not the needs of our lives. They're the wants of our lives. And yet I have people listening to this message right now who are going, no, food and clothing and shelter are very scarce for me right now. And Jesus is calling us to a deeper level of faith to say, I supply for the birds, I will supply for you. But I gotta hold both of those things in tension right now. So just bear with me, give me some grace as I try to make a point to two poles on this extreme. D.A. Carson makes a really great point on this. He, he says this, he says, the conclusion is inevitable. Are you not much more valuable than they? If your heavenly father feeds them, will he not undertake to feed you, especially in the light of the fact that he considers you more valuable than they? And this is my favorite part, this last sentence. He says, and therefore, is not constant worry about how future meals will be provided an affront to God, a charge that we cannot trust his providence. You see, the, the reality is that we so many times don't really think about our worry that way. We don't think about our worry, our anxiety, our stress as an affront to God. And, and Jesus' main point isn't birds in this, it's the example to kind of set up his point in verse 27. In 27, he says this, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? You see, worry is that thing that we do. Anxiety is that thing that we do when we feel powerless. We sit there and we have all these different situations in our lives, and as we feel these situations, we look out there and we go, ooh, that. Oh, that's tough. That one stresses me out. It's, it's finances. It's, it's my kid. It's my this. It's my that. And I can't do a darn thing right now to affect that circumstance. And so in the midst of my powerlessness, I can tell you I can do one thing and I can do it really well and I can even make it hurt so it feels like I'm working and that thing is worry. I can worry so it makes me feel like I'm actually active in doing something. But what Jesus does is he takes that away from us. He goes, which of you, by being worried, has added even an hour to your life? Now, Jesus is actually being incredibly gentle on this point. Because what I'd tell you, and by the way, science is totally on my side on this one, you can't add an hour to your life. You actually can, can knock a few off. The science on stress and anxiety when affecting the human body is it will not work for as long if you run it on that fuel. You can wear yourself out. You can stress yourself into an early grave. You guys ever seen those pictures of presidents before and after office? <laughs> like you, I mean, the, the, the most recent one, like Obama came in, good looking, looked young, he left and it was like, that was like 20 years worth of life in the eight. Same thing, President Lincoln. You look at him pre and post Civil War, man, when that guy was done with the Civil War, he looked like Yoda. It was just like, whoa, what happened to you, man? The reality is that I, I, I do this sometimes and I know what's heavy, guys, and before I say this, I just wanna tell you, I feel this with you, but this is a hard one to swallow. I, I want us to make a more accurate statement because I think we sugarcoat the way that we kind of do anxiety from time to time. 
So many times we'll sit with a, a buddy at lunch and we'll be talking about you know, finances. Ah, I'm just a little anxious about how this month is gonna go. Or sitting with a girlfriend at coffee and you'll say, you know, I'm just a little anxious about how the summer's gonna go relationally with family and the kids and this and that. I just want us to make a more accurate statement, okay? Let's say that, for example, let's use me. It's always easier when we pick on me. So let's say that I'm sitting there and I go, somebody says, Rustin, how you doing? And it's the Wednesday before I preach. And I say, I'm a little anxious about how this sermon's gonna go. I should discipline myself to make a more accurate statement. That statement would be this. Hey, Rustin, how are you feeling about your sermon coming up this weekend? You know, I just don't trust God with this weekend's sermon. <laughs> I actually trust my ability to put it together, to worry, to stress, to be anxious. Uh, and I trust my ability to manipulate and kind of coerce my circumstances and my thoughts and my words. I trust my ability more than I trust God's. Because that's what our anxiety is. That's D.A. Carson's point. Do you not see that when you are anxious, God is going, do you not trust me? What is it in your life? Are you willing to make a statement that honest to God? Because guess what? You're not hiding. He knows. If it's your money, your marriage, your kids, whatever. He knows. He gets it. He goes, I wish you would just trust me. You're not adding an hour to the span of your life. This is greatly detracting or depleting from what's going on with you. I know that that's a lot to swallow, but I just want to encourage us. Can we just be honest with our Heavenly Father? I don't trust you with this thing. You'll be amazed what happens next. That is admitting brokenness. God, I don't know how maybe to trust you with this. And he goes, great, that's a starting point. We at least have admitted where we are. I want us to think about that. Jesus goes from there, he jumps into his next example, and I love this, he just goes, why are you anxious about clothing? He goes, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow will be thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Now, this is a way easier example for us to get to because like nobody cares about grass, all right? We don't view it as like a relational thing. Nobody's out there laying in their lawn going, you make me feel good, okay? So the, most of the time we're like trying to keep it out of the cracks in the sidewalk. We're killing this stuff left and right. Just why can't I get it to stay there, okay? So the reality is Jesus does a great thing here because he goes, grass, right? It is, by the way, it is literally the most plentiful growing plant on planet Earth. It grows everywhere, all kinds of different forms. You, it's so hard to get rid of because it is just constant. And so Jesus is making a great point that they would have been able to connect to because of the area he was preaching in the first century, there was all kinds of fields that were nearby. And what would happen is these storms would blow in. And if you hadn't been over a hill in a little while, like you hadn't seen over the hill because there was no real elevation at the time. If you hadn't been over a hill in a while, you could all of a sudden walk up over the hill and you could look and all of a sudden you might see something like this. You might all of a sudden see a field that had just exploded into bloom. So Jesus is making a point to just go, listen, guys, here's the deal. Like you, you kind of understand like grass, grass has this incredible thing that, that it does. Like it, it explodes into color. It's it's immense, it's immersive. And what he does, this is so great, is he goes, let's liken it to somebody that we've all heard of. Solomon, everybody knew Solomon. He was popular, okay? 
And they just, Jesus just goes, I want you to just imagine Solomon in all of his glory, the finest robes, the gold crown, everything that came with it. Think about that just one man. And he goes, but boy, it would be nothing like standing in a field. Let's just say like, like any one of the rooms that we've got. And you just imagine you were standing there. How immersive an experience would it be to be in the midst of vivid, totally just visually encapsulating color like that. And Jesus just goes, yeah, one man standing here in front of you is nothing compared to this. And what I love is, and Jesus goes, and guess what? That's just grass. I'm decking the grass out with that type of clothing, right? And you guys don't even care about this stuff. You're literally throwing it into the fire. And he goes, again, do you guys not understand that if I'll do that for grass, I'll clothe you. Now, again, let's go back to needs and wants, okay? Uh, My wife would tell you I'm not low maintenance when it comes to clothing, okay? I admit it, all right? But if I sat there and I went, God, I expect a wardrobe change every season, all right? You gotta rotate this thing over. I can't be wearing the same stuff. If I go to God with that, that's that's a want. If God would would sit there and go, "Do, do you have pants? Do you have a pair of sandals or shoes? Do you have a shirt? Great, you don't have to leave your house exposed. That's a need, Russ. I used to take these trips to Africa and it was always really uh, sweet. I would go and we would stay at these Christian guest houses and it was really cool because as we sat there, we we would kind of hang out and all these guys who worked at the Christian guest houses, you kind of got to know them pretty quickly. And and again, like I would start to know them by their t-shirts. So I'd be in Uganda, we're in the Kampala area, and I would start to know them by their t-shirts because they wore the same t-shirt every day. They had a t-shirt. Their needs were met. And so what I would do is I'd throw a bunch of extra t-shirts. Anybody, I mean, we are literally getting rid of t-shirts, right? We're stocking Goodwill because we have more stuff than we need. So I finally decided I'm gonna stop taking stuff to Goodwill, I'm just gonna take it to Africa. And I would stuff a bag with all these extra shirts. And it was so sweet because it was like Christmas for them. Towards the end of the trip with a couple of days left, I'd kind of bring all the guys in who were around and I'd just say, hey, all right. You know, it was like the NFL draft. We'd sit there and I'm like, who wants blue? And they're like, I want blue. Okay, great. You get blue, you get red, you get gray, you know. And and then the next day I would see them in their shirts. And for the rest of the trip, they wore the same shirt because that was what they had. They now had two shirts. That was what they had. And when they started to smell, they just, they went in, they washed them quickly, they hung them out to dry, they didn't have a shirt on. And now they had an exchange shirt. They had one they could wear while the other one got washed. You see, my point again, is that what Jesus is talking about when it comes to clothing is, I don't want you to have to walk around the world exposed. That's humiliating. I wanna make sure you're covered, but that's a need. He doesn't promise us a seasonal wardrobe change. And so many of us, what we're stressed about, it's a want, not a need. It's at this point that Jesus comes back in verse, uh, in verse 31 and 32 and he, he kind of really lays something big out. He says, therefore, so right, he's given his two examples. It's like this and it's like this. And he comes back and goes, okay, so do you get it? Because my point is, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? And then 32 is where it gets really cool. Because he says this, he says, for the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. Now that word Gentiles is confusing for us because it actually changes meaning a little bit when we transition from the gospels into a post-resurrection portion of the scriptures, okay? Here's what I mean by that. 
Post-resurrection, we have Gentile inclusion, meaning people who were non-Jews were now folded into the family of God through the blood of Christ and the trusting, believing in faith in that sacrifice. Does that make sense? So now all of a sudden you have the word Gentiles and you have a ministry where people who were non-Jewish were being folded into the family of God, okay? That hasn't happened yet. So we're in Matthew and Jesus is teaching and what he's saying is this, Gentiles, meaning non-believing world. Does that make sense? So what he's saying here is the non-believing world seeks after these things. And yet your heavenly father knows that you need them all. Jesus' point is the world seeks one way and you should be seeking differently. This is the point. The point of this passage, I'm about to turn this whole concept on its head because the point of this passage is what you seek matters. This is why the needs and wants point is so imperative because if what you are seeking after are wants and God provides needs, you're gonna be very disappointed in God. He goes, listen, I didn't promise you that. And let, I mean, here's the thing. Food and clothing was the stuff of the day. Let's, I can modernize this in a nanosecond. He didn't promise all the wants and the deepest dreams and desires of your heart. What he says, just like in the Psalms, is delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. I've talked about this one a lot. Why? Because when you delight in the Lord, his things become delightful. They become the desires of your heart. So the reality is that what we seek will make all the difference in how pleased we are with God's provision. And this seeking concept is where we wrap things up today because Jesus comes in and now that he has reiterated his point and done all the exemplification that he needs to do, he says this in verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Jesus is saying this. Listen, here's the deal. I'm looking at the world and the world is seeking after these things. This is what the world is doing. And he's going, and what I'm starting to see as, by the way, the creator of this whole world, what I'm seeing is I'm seeing that that is creating something. It's creating anxiety and that's not working very well. And so Jesus goes, here's your solution, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all these things will be added to you. That's a really big and abstract deal. So I get to use my little example here for those of you who are watching me walk by this and you're, what's under the sheet? Well, it's just this, okay? Now, I'm gonna tell you something about my childhood. I grew up with a mom who taught Bible studies, okay? So this is the type of excitement that happened at my kitchen table, all right? This is how I grew up. I grew up with my mom doing, hey, Rustin, look what I'm gonna do at my Bible study. All right, mom, I'm playing Nintendo, but let's check this out, okay? It's a lot cooler to me now. So here's the deal. This container right here, this is our lives, all right? And the way that our lives work sometimes is we take all of our stuff, all right? We take our stuff and we go, all right, here's the deal. I need my food, I need my clothing, all right? I need my hobbies and relationships, my friends, maybe some of my vacations, maybe even good things. I need my wife and my children and all those things. And now I got them, this is my life. Many of you have seen this, don't ruin it for your friend, all right? And then we sit there and we've talked about this a lot all right, we talk about how we have all these things that are going on in our lives. And then we sit there and we go, gosh, we got all our stuff. We think we've provided for our needs. And then we go, but something's still missing. I'm missing something. So what we do is we come in and we go, you know what I need? I heard a great sermon the other day. I need to put a little bit of God in my life. And we put God in our life. We sit there and we go, okay. Now, I gotta, I gotta try and pack my life up and make it, 
Guys, this is what Jesus is talking about. He's going, the world is seeking after these things, or you guys are seeking after stuff. You're putting it in first, and then you're trying to add me, and it's making you anxious. It's creating anxiety. What he's saying is your life, it doesn't work when you put these other things in first. So what Jesus says is he goes, all right, here's the deal. I wanna help you guys out because it's breaking my heart to watch you do your lives with the wrong order of operation. You finally get to a place where you go, my life doesn't work this way. I can't live this way. People come into church like this all the time and they go, I need help. And what do we say? They're in a totally, they're, they're moving from wounded to broken and they're in this broken place and they go, what do I do? And they get some pastor like me that goes, why don't you just go back to basics? Let's put God in your life. So what Jesus is saying is, when you put me in first, okay? And then what you do is you start to add your food, you start to add your clothing, you start to add your vacations, your hobbies, all the different things in your life. How many of you are stressed, wondering if I measured this correctly, okay? <laughs> no, y'all are very sweet. You're freaking out for me right now. Okay, you add all this stuff in, and then you sit back and you start to go, okay, so now this is my life. And Jesus goes, yeah, try that again. It all fits just great. Yeah, I know. It's my little Christian magic trick right there. Rustin Copperfield is making it rain today. You see what Jesus says is he goes, we've heard this before. Listen, I want the first fruits of your life. That's what he says. I want your first fruits. He wants the first things out. What I want you to understand today is he also wants the first place in, right? It's an economics principle. First in, first out. He wants to be the first in and he wants to take the first out. He goes, listen, I wanna be on the front end of your entire life because the reality is when you get to a place where you put me in first, everything else fits into its appropriate proportion, when you put me in first, I start to fill all these places of you that nothing else can fill. So your food, instead of needing to be at a 13 to try and fill your empty spaces, it comes down to a two where it's supposed to be. Same thing with your clothing and your hobbies, even good things. Let's go back to our idol sermon a month or two ago. We talked about the fact that even great things, if you are going to your family, your husband or your wife or your children or your other relationships, and you're going to them and you're trying to get God-sized things out of them, don't be shocked if they are exhausted and you are unhappy. Because what happens is they were never meant to fill those spots. But when Jesus is the first in, then guess what? Everything else falls into proportion. You now go to your husband or your wife and you go, you know what? I'm good with that. This is great. We can now enjoy relationship at the right level because I'm not trying to get Jesus out of you. I can now go to my food. Here's the thing. We think about food and we go, this is probably a really great message for people who don't have enough food. I got plenty of food. Here's the reality. If you don't have enough food, it can create anxiety. If you have too much food, it can create anxiety. We live in a country where the rest of the world is starving and our biggest problem is we are eating ourselves to death. That's making us just as anxious as the other side of the spectrum. What Jesus is saying here is it's not about food and it's not about clothing. He's saying any one of these things that gets out of position in your seeking will create the byproduct, which is anxiety. Now, I wanna put a caution on this because this is one of those verses that as pastors in our day and age, we gotta qualify a little bit. Do not use this verse, 33, as a torque wrench with God. 
Don't come in and go, all right, God, I went ahead and I sought your kingdom and your righteousness. Now, where's my stuff? Because he doesn't know you anything. He doesn't know me anything. Out of love, he looks at the world and he goes, this isn't working, is it? Out of love, he looks at the world and he says, this part is out of whack. I'd like to offer a solution to you if you want one. He doesn't owe you food. He doesn't owe you clothing. He doesn't owe you blessing. He goes, uh, if you do this, you'll never be happy with anything. And anxiety is the byproduct of a life aimed at the wrong stuff. So stop doing that and give this a try. If in his gracious gift of offering us a solution, we come back and use it as a torque wrench against him? What? No. It's a solution to one of life's biggest problems. So don't sit there and think, oh, God, now, oh, I sought his kingdom. I did this. If you do it with the wrong heart, if it's a behavior and not a heart change, we will inherently be disappointed because he's after our hearts in this statement. Give your heart to me and then don't be shocked when everything else in your life fits because that's what'll happen. Your heart will be satisfied in me, my righteousness and the kingdom and the way it works and the rest of the stuff, it's not gonna be not, it's not, gonna be not needed, it's just gonna be appropriately proportioned. It fits. And what's so great about the way Jesus, he, he, he's already way ahead of us. Like he's sitting there and, and already you can kind of feel it. All right, Rustin, so that's this, I gotta seek first the kingdom. What do I do that for about a month? Jesus goes, oh, oh yeah, no, I already know this is coming. Because the next thing he says in verse 34 is the solution. He goes, you guys can't even handle a month. Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Guys, this right here, this is not a monthly meal kit. This is not a weekly meal kit. This is your daily bread. You gotta get up every day. You gotta get into the word. You gotta look at God and say, you are the most important thing in my life. And so I put you in first. And then I am satisfied with whatever else gets added. Because this is daily bread. I gotta do this every stinking day. And you know what? Our hearts don't like that sometimes. We go, but what about the days when I wake up and I'm just not in the mood for you, God? And he goes, yeah, those are the days you need me the most. Those are the days you gotta fight your way to my side because this is daily bread. The best picture of daily bread, I've used this example before, but it's those Israelites, the ones that we make fun of because we think they're really stupid. You try spending 40 years in the desert wandering around and don't get in a bad mood. Reality is we don't go four weeks, much less four decades. The Israelites had this problem, they were hungry and God goes, here's daily bread. I'm gonna put the manna on the ground. And guys, they're just like us. We start taking things and we start, they start doing what we're doing. Let's get a bunch of this stuff so that we can stash it away to what end? So that I don't have to rely on tomorrow's bread. They wanted weekly manna, monthly manna, annual manna. It keeps forever. But they tried to do that and God went, oh, I built in a bit of a system so that you can kind of rely on me and me alone. The stuff went bad. It literally developed worms, says the scriptures, if they tried to keep it except for the one day a week where it lasted from Saturday through Monday. They could gather two days so that God goes, I'm gonna give you a reprieve. You don't have to gather this stuff so you can have a rest day on Sunday, okay? 
But what God was showing them is the same thing he's showing us. The New Testament version is daily bread. Jesus is exemplifying it here. He's going, listen to me. I want you to know you can come to me every day and I will be there. I wanna be with you. I wanna give you daily bread. But the problem is for us is that we are so addicted to self that what I wanna do in my life is I want a self-dependent life, not a God-dependent life. I get anxious because the reality is I sit back and I don't, I don't wanna be poor in spirit. I wanna be rich in self. That phrase doesn't make sense. Go back to week one. Watch the sermon on being broken versus being wounded on what it truly means for us to be poor in spirit like Jesus starts this whole Sermon on the Mount off. I wanna sit there and say, yeah, I'm good, but here's the problem. We sit back and we sort of go, okay, I'm good. Now all my needs are provided for. I've got my needs. Now, God, I'll come to you when I need you. He goes, you need me every day. Every day, you're gonna need me in your life. Everybody's asking the question right now, so how do I stop being anxious? If you're taking notes, I just, I want you to, to write this down. I'll say it extremely slow. Here's the point. Here's how you stop being anxious. Anxiety is the byproduct of a life focused on the wrong things. You stop being anxious because you aim at something different. Anxiety is the byproduct of a life focused on the wrong things. If you have a problem with that, if that's too simple for you, please don't get mad at me. You can be super upset with Jesus because that's what this passage says. He describes anxiety, he describes examples, and then he goes, listen, if this is going on in your life, it's not something that you stop by addressing it directly, it's something that you get out of by stepping away and changing what you're pursuing. A life run on anything but me will have this byproduct. You're gonna be really anxious. And in fact, it's gonna be the furthest thing from life-giving, it will actually start to kill you. This is the slowest form of suicide there is. There's a reality in our lives that we are desperate for so many things. But Jesus just says, the thing you need to be most desperate for, I love that picture that Kevin kind of put together for us. Kevin does such a good job of putting together sermon examples. I remember them almost more than my own. I sit there and I remember, we were just at Disneyland a few, few weeks ago, and I remember I looked at my wife and I said, what sermon example am I thinking of right now? We were getting ready to get on the tram. And she goes, oh, Kevin's example of being on the tram with his kid. I went, yep, that's the one. But a couple of weeks ago, Kevin sits there and Kevin looks and he goes, it's like that kid that's crawling up its mom's arm, clinging out of fear to its mother's arm out of desperation. That's what God is saying. I need you to come in and to cling to me every day because that's how desperate you are for me, whether you know it or not. But if we're anxious, it's because we are seeking in a worldly way. We are not seeking in a godly direction. That is the point of this passage. I cannot make it any more practical than that. The only thing I would tell you is don't waste the desperate times in your life. Because when desperation kicks in, those are the times where you go, I have tried seeking after the world for too long. I am dumping out my sand. I am putting God in first. I'm gonna see what else fits. Desperate times are the best time for that reboot. So the reality is the way that we find our poor in spirit has a lot to do with how anxious we are. It is a stepping away from an anxious life and stepping in a new direction that has Christ going in first, identifying what our needs versus our wants are and being pleased with what God gives us because we have him. We're desperate for him. 
and our hearts are filled in ways that we never thought possible. That's the message of this extremely practical portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Next week, we're gonna come back and we're gonna talk about what it means for this golden rule to play itself out, for us to treat others how we want to be treated, something that I think we all could use a good reminder for. Let's do this. I wanna pray over us as we kind of wrap up. God, uh, I just pray right now that you would uh, be with each and every one of us as we internalize uh, this reality. This is a lot to sit back and to, to kind of reimagine our anxiety as a byproduct of something else that we might be doing rather than sitting there and saying, no, I want to address this issue specifically. Uh, God, I pray that you'd be with each and every one of us, that you would give us eyes to see the places where we are coming after the world instead of coming after you. The, the places in our lives where we need you the most and yet we've put other things in there. Help us clear out those places that we might be with you in a more intentional way. Lord, we love you. We say these things in your name, amen.